I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn with me this morning to Joel chapter 2, book of Joel chapter 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 967. I want to begin this morning um, by telling you a story that may not look at first like it has anything to do, do with Joel 2, but it gives some important context to what we're going to read this morning. So I'm going to tell you a story from the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers tells of Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering. So Israel has already come out of Egypt, but they have not yet entered the promised land, and they spend these 40 years in the desert where an entire generation dies off. So it's a difficult season. It's a disappointing season. And in order to help Moses through this, God instructs him to appoint 70 elders. God tells him, they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So Moses, you're not adequate for this. You need help. And so in order to help, we're going to appoint these 70 elders, 70 people who are going to help you uh, to bear the burden of leadership. So Moses gathers these 70 people at the tabernacle, and then here's what happens next. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So 70 people plus Moses gathered at the tabernacle. The Lord comes down. The Spirit begins to rest on these 70 people, and they prophesy, but then they stop. They prophesy for who knows how long, and then they stop. Now, all of that takes place at the tabernacle. And then if you're reading the story in Numbers 11, suddenly the perspective shifts back to the camp, back to where all the sort of ordinary Israelites were living. And while all that's happening at the tabernacle, there are these two just random Israelites. One of them's name is Eldad, and one's name is Medad. They're not at the tabernacle when the Spirit rested on the 70 elders. Nevertheless, the Spirit also rests on them, on Eldad and Medad. And there they are, not at the tabernacle, but just out in the camp, out in normal life. And they begin to prophesy like the others, like the people who are at the tabernacle. And so Joshua, who was Moses' friend and assistant, sees this and he reacts in kind of a curious way. He goes to Moses and he begins to plead with him to make them stop. Moses, you've got to go to these two people, to Eldad and Medad, and you have to tell them to stop. Why would Joshua react that way? Well, this is a time when up to this point in history, God's Spirit would, would rest on often an individual a very special person to commission that person for, for some kind of special task. So the Spirit of God resting on someone was a, this divine signal that this individual, in this case Moses, he is the leader for this particular moment. And so Joshua, it seems, feared that if the Spirit of God rested on all these people, and, and not only on those people at the tabernacle, but even these just random guys in the camp, what does that mean for Moses? That, that seems to make him a lot less special. And listen to how Moses responded to Joshua. Moses said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. 
Moses' response is, what's happened, it's not big enough yet. I'm looking for a day when the Spirit won't just rest on one person or on 70 people or on 72 people, but on all of the Lord's people. And this morning we're going to hear the Lord speak through Joel of a day when that desire would be fulfilled. So let's read together in Joel chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. We're going to pause there and let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word that you spoke through your servant Joel so many years ago. And we pray that you would help us to uh, understand this rightly in its proper context as you spoke it, but also that you would help us to hear how this word applies to us, how this word speaks of Jesus and of what he has done on our behalf. And Lord, that you would lead us to the same response to which you called the people of Israel, that we would be glad and rejoice in you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's a, there's a lot that you can understand about the message of Joel by paying attention to a few key commands. I was kind of looking back over Joel this week, and, and as Colby was preaching last week, I was thinking about this, and you could almost summarize the, the message of the book in this way by, by pointing to a few key commands that he gives to the people of God. So I want to kind of take a step back and, and, and observe this for just a moment. The first key command is found in chapter 1, verse 14, cry out to the Lord. So chapter 1 was all about the need for Israel to wake up and to lament their sin. He told them to lament like a, a bride on her wedding day when her groom has died. Um, he tells the, the priests to, to call the entire nation to this collective act of 
morning, he said, Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. That's the first key command. The second key command is found in the passage that Colby preached last Sunday in chapter 2, verse 13, return to the Lord. So it wasn't enough for them merely to mourn their sin, to sort of feel bad about it, but they needed to go beyond that. They needed to turn from it. And so God says to them, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So they were to cry out to the Lord and return to the Lord. And then the third key command is in our passage this morning. Be glad and rejoice in the Lord. And I'm borrowing those exact words from verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. I want us, kind of before we rush past that, to just stop and meditate on that command. Be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, because it's awfully easy to think about gladness and rejoicing in superficial ways, right? Gladness is an internal state. It is something that happens within a person. It is a frame of mind and of heart that recognizes the compassion and faithfulness of God, which is totally undeserved. And then rejoicing is an external expression of that internal state. Rejoicing is not the same as being joyful. Rejoicing is an act. It is something we do with our mouths. Rejoicing does not necessarily mean jumping up and down in a fit of ecstatic glee. Rejoicing in the biblical sense means blessing the Lord's name, even in painful circumstances and telling others what he has done for you. In Job chapter 1, when Job loses everything he owns and even loses his children, what does he do? He tears his clothes and he says, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That doesn't look like rejoicing, but biblically speaking, that is what rejoicing is. It's not always this put on a smile and I'm just so happy. Sometimes it means tearing my clothes and being sad and crying, but still saying, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Down in verse 26, Joel calls on God's people to praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. That's what it means to be glad and rejoice. It is to recognize the Lord's compassion and faithfulness to recognize how He has dealt wondrously with you. And you can do that even when you are sad or anxious. And so it's to recognize that and to respond with praise and thanksgiving. Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So you have to recognize how He's dealt wondrously with you and you have to praise His name. That's what it means to be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. And so the question that naturally arises then is, why? Why should we be glad and rejoice? God doesn't just tell us to do it. He gives us reasons why we should do it. And so another way you could put it is, how has God dealt wondrously with you? If, if we're called to praise the name of the Lord who has dealt wondrously with us, how has He dealt wondrously with us? What are some specific ways that He has done that? 
Obviously, our experience is not identical to the people of Joel's generation, but we can still apply the same principles to our own lives. And so I want to kind of take what Joel says in these verses and boil it down to three reasons, three reasons why we should be glad and rejoice in the Lord our God. The first reason is because the Lord provides for us. The Lord provides for us. It is terribly easy to live practically as if we think that we have no need of God. And yet when Jesus' disciples asked Him, Lord, teach us to pray, He told them to pray among other things, give us each day our daily bread. I mean, just as simple as that. Lord, we need you to give us our, our bread for today. We need you to provide for us the things that we need to survive today. This is Christianity 101. Even my most basic needs for survival are gracious gifts from my Father in heaven. Paul said in Acts 17, 25, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If I woke up this morning and had breath in my lungs and was able to go and get water from somewhere and something to eat, that is because God has been good to me. He has provided for me. And one of the consistent themes of the 12 minor prophets is that God sometimes temporarily withdraws physical blessings in order to remind His children of something that they were forgetting in their prosperity. Because oftentimes when we have more than we need, it's easy to think that we don't need God, right? We become like the people of Laodicea who say, I, I have enough. I have all I need. And God says, no, you don't. Because the reason you have all you need is because I've given it to you and I am able to take it away. And that's what He did for the people of Israel, to teach them not to depend on themselves, to teach them not to depend on that prosperity. That prosperity did not come from you. That health did not come from you. That satisfaction did not come from you. I gave it. I can take it away to teach you to trust not in the gift but in the giver. And so in Joel chapter 1, you, you see this description of that happening, of this period of desolation and destruction where the things that Israel depended on was taken away. And what God pictures here in the second half of chapter 2 is a reversal of that, a reversal of that desolation and a renewal of, of abundance. In chapter 1, God said that the ground itself mourned, that the, the beasts of the field groaned, and were perplexed because there was not enough to eat. He said that uh, the vines were shriveled and the trees were stripped bare. Now he says in verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. So there's no longer any reason for the ground to mourn. Now it can rejoice. And then verse 22, Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. God said in chapter 1, the storehouses were empty and torn down because there was no need for them anymore. Now he says in verse 24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Grain, wine, and oil, those three staples of life in a Mediterranean area were taken away. And now God says they're going to be, you're not going to have enough room to store all that I'm going to give to you. Over and over it's this picture of renewal from desolation to abundance 
from emptiness to fullness, from groaning to gladness. And so the point is, every day of our lives that we have enough to eat and to drink is a gift from the gracious hand of God. And we should never, ever forget that. The Lord provides for us. That's the first reason why we can be glad and rejoice in Him. And the second reason is because the Lord guides our lives. The Lord guides our lives. Look with me at verse 19. This is when God answers the prayers of His people. It says, The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. So there's a promise of, of provision, of renewal, of agricultural blessings. And then the second half of verse 19, And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now God explains what He means in the next verse, verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you, and drive him into a parched and desolate land. So God is going to take away the shame and the reproach that Israel was under by removing what God calls the northerner far from you, drive him into a parched and desolate land. Now, one of the things that I said a couple weeks ago when we started Joel is we don't really know, we have no idea when Joel's ministry took place could have been, there's like this huge, you know, hundreds of years window when Joel could have been any of, any of that time. No matter the specific time, however, we know from, you know, history from the Old Testament that there were, there were two foreign nations who invaded Israel and then later Judah, first the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. Both of those nations will have come from the north. So when God says, I will remove the northern or far from you, no matter when Joel was in time, that would apply to either of those invading nations. And there's, because of that, because of that kind of pattern, uh, and because of the geography of Palestine and the history and everything, there's, there's evidence that the phrase northerner, the term northerner, uh, kind of became this figure of speech, this idiom in Israelite culture that would refer to any kind of troublesome intruder. So when God says, I will remove the northerner far from you, he could kind of be speaking figuratively. He could be talking about the locusts that plagued the land, the locusts that he talked about in chapter 1. And that would make sense of God saying that he would drive them out to sea and that there would be a stench and foul smell. That kind of thing was known to happen after locust plagues. They would go out into the sea and then they would you know, die and it would stink. So either way, the point is, whether he's talking about Assyrians or Babylonians or locusts. The point is, the northerner is kind of this catch-all term that refers to all of these troubles that have plagued Israel. And what's most important from our perspective is to see God's purpose in all of this. Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, not only is he going to remove the source of the problem, the source of the trouble, but he says in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Now, there are two crucial truths in verse 25. First is that God is the one who sent this army. 
Back in verse 11, Joel referred to them as the Lord's army. And so he's been hinting at that. But now this is where he gets very straightforward. And God says, I sent them. I sent them among you. In case you had any doubt, God says, I'm the one who sent them. That's one crucial truth. The other is that God says, I will restore to you the years that were eaten. So God says, I sent the judgment, and now I am bringing the restoration. He guides both the judgment and the restoration. One way to think about it is Joel 2.25 is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28, right? Where God says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. If we live long enough, we're all going to endure seasons of hardship and pain, seasons of waiting and confusion, where we say, Lord, I don't know exactly what you're doing with this. Seasons of fear and shame, and this can go on for years. But God says, in effect, none of those years are wasted. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. None of that trouble was wasted. None of this trouble that I'm causing to you to walk through will be in vain. It, will, it is all for your good. I have planned it. I am guiding it. You may feel like you're spinning your wheels. You may feel like things aren't happening the way they should, but I am guiding this. I am working this, and I am with you all the way through it. And that leads us very naturally to the third reason we should be glad and rejoice in the Lord, because the Lord dwells with us. He provides for us, He guides the course of our lives, and He dwells with us. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, I want us to just kind of pause there for a second and think about all of the things that God promises to do in the second half of chapter 2. Because we live in such a materialistic society, it's probably easier for us to wrap our minds around why the Lord providing for us and guiding our lives should be such a cause for gladness and rejoicing. I certainly don't want to minimize the reality of physical needs. We don't need to over-spiritualize this and say, well, we don't really need things. You know, Jesus said man cannot live by bread alone, but he, he didn't say man doesn't need bread to live, right? Under normal circumstances, God is the one who created us to have certain basic material needs. We need water. We need food. We need sleep. We need shelter. And Jesus modeled for us and even commanded us not only to meet spiritual needs, but also physical needs. What you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. Lord, when did we see you in prison and visit you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you naked and give you clothing? You did it when you did it for the least of these. So he, he tells us to care about physical needs, not only spiritual needs. With that big disclaimer in place, however, let's 
also not overlook the wonder of what God was promising when He said that He would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. This is the very thing that Moses longed for in Numbers 11. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Joshua wrongly thought of God's Spirit as a commodity that was in limited supply. Sometimes call that zero sum, that if these people have the Spirit, then that means that that person doesn't. And Moses recognized, no, there is more than enough of God's Spirit to go around. Moses' question is, how great would it be if the Lord put His Spirit on all of His people? Moses knew, knew firsthand how great it was to have the Spirit rest on you. And Moses longed for that to be true of all of the Lord's people. And what God promises through Joel is a day when that desire will be fulfilled. God will pour out His Spirit in lavish abundance. And I would suggest to you that one of the purposes for the lavish abundance with which God restores Israel physically, restores those physical blessings physically, is to teach them to give us an understanding of what it will mean for Him to pour out His Spirit. He says that He is going to pour down for you abundant rain. That's what He says in verse 23. And then He uses the exact same phrase in verse 28 when He says, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And this gift of the Spirit breaks all barriers of, of gender. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. This outpouring supersedes all divisions of age. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And it extends to every rung of the socioeconomic ladder. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So God is promising a day when His Spirit will not only rest on an individual or even on a certain kind of individual or an individual from a certain family, but God's promising a day when His Spirit will rest on all of His people. He will pour out this gift on all of His people. And this is a promise that began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. I say began to be fulfilled because it's still being fulfilled today. The outpouring at, at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit was so evident that it caused people to wonder what was happening. They said, are the followers of Jesus drunk? And Peter gets up and says, no, it's only nine in the morning, so they're not drunk. And so he stands up and he explains, and this is what he says. He says, this, the thing you're seeing, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes the passage we just read. And in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Pentecost was the realization of God's promise through Joel. And Peter helps us to see that the gift that God promised through Joel, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, was purchased and poured out by Jesus. Peter goes on to say in that Pentecost sermon, This Jesus... God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So here's, here's the picture that Peter paints there in Acts 2. Jesus, who came, sent by God, performed mighty works, crucified in Jerusalem. God raised Him from the dead. All of us are witnesses of that. We've seen it. Now He's been exalted at the right hand of God. And when He was exalted at the right hand of God, the Father was so pleased with Him, so pleased with the work that He finished, that the Father gave to Him, as it were, this gift of the Spirit. Peter says that being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus receives that gift on our behalf and then He pours it out on us. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The gift of the Spirit was secured through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3. He became a curse for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He gets the curse, we get the gift. And the gift that we get is not just salvation or forgiveness in some vague sense. The gift is the Spirit, the presence of God dwelling with us because now we're no longer sinners who are under the just condemnation of God. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive together with Christ. God has declared us righteous. He sees Jesus when He looks at us, and now He has given to us the gift of His own presence with us in the person of the Spirit. And just as Joel promised that this gift would extend to all kinds of people, sons and daughters, old men, young men, male and female servants, the same picture unfolds in the book of Acts as the gospel goes forth to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. More and more diverse people begin to trust in Christ and surrender to Him. And God's Spirit keeps being given to these new believers so that Peter says, who are we? Who are we to withhold baptism from these Gentiles when God has poured out His Spirit upon them? We can't argue with that, right? We can't argue with the fact that God has given His Spirit not just to us, Jewish people, but even to these Gentiles. And then later in Acts 15, when there was this, this debate within the church about should these Gentile Christians, should they have to... Should they have to obey the law just as Jewish people did? Peter stands up there in Jerusalem and speaks, and he says this, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, Gentile Christians, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, Jewish Christians. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. When you think about the wonder of all the promises that God gives to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And then Peter stands up and says, God knows the heart and He has borne witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He's made no distinction between us and them. He has cleansed their hearts by faith. That desire that, that, that Moses had back in Numbers 11 
when he said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Spirit would put his spirit, the Lord would put his spirit on them. That promise is way bigger than Abraham. It's way bigger than ethnic Israel. It encompasses the world. It encompasses every people, every tribe, every nation, every language, whoever will trust in Jesus. The promise is not just for one nation. It's not just for one people. It is for whoever will trust in the Lord Jesus. And so if we're united to him by faith, this promise is for you and me. We are heirs of this gift. The Lord dwells with us. And so the takeaway is, is really, really simple. If you've never trusted in Jesus, today is the day to receive the gift that he offers to those who will come to him in true faith and repentance. And if you have surrendered to him, then you and I have every reason to be glad and to rejoice in him. Because we don't, we don't always feel that way, do we? Sometimes we have to obey the command to rejoice and praise Him and wait for our feelings to catch up. And so we can meditate on His provision for us. We can, we can think of all the ways that He has provided for us, all the ways that He has guided the circumstances of our lives. And we can consider that we who once were far off, we who once were alienated from God and hostile to Him, have been reconciled to Him through the blood of Jesus Christ and that He Himself now dwells with us by His Spirit. And let those truths be a catalyst for gladness and rejoicing. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And the response is, as we're going to sing in just a moment, I... Surrender all. Not a little bit, not most, all. He is faithful to forgive and to cleanse. He is faithful to dwell, to guide and to provide for those who are His own. So let us surrender to Him and receive what He offers to us through His Son. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this provision that You have made for us. Lord, that You provide for us day after day. You provide life and breath and everything, and that daily provision is a a way of helping us to understand that You are the one who provides for us what we ultimately and truly need. That You have in Your Son Jesus come to Give us the very thing you have desired for us, the very thing you promised for us, that, Lord Jesus, you came to reconcile us to a holy God so that he might dwell with us in the person of his Spirit. And so, Spirit of God, we're thankful for how you inspired this word, and I pray that you would now impress it upon our hearts, illuminate it in us, that we might hear it as your word, that we might respond to you in true faith and repentance. Lord, that we would come to you and receive what you have to give to us. Lord, if there's anyone who is hearing the sound of my voice right now who has never surrendered to you, I pray that they would be uneasy until they do, that you would uh, convict them of their sin and of the righteousness of Jesus and draw them to you. 
And Lord, for those who are listening to the sound of my voice right now who have been reconciled to you, that you would comfort them with the truth of your word, that you are the provider and the guider of their lives, and you are the one who dwells with them, who walks with them through every uh, valley and through uh, fiery trials and deep waters. You are with us. Would you remind us and assure us of that truth today that, that we might be glad and rejoice in you? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.